Hello, everybody. Mike and Andy here. This is episode uh, 44 of the Vox Podcast. 44 was my uh, number in high school football. So this one is going to be big and bulky. Um, and I uh, want to say hello to everybody, uh, particularly if you're outside the United States of America. Hello. Reminder, we have two podcasts. One is the Vox uh, Subversive Kingdom podcast. Uh, the other is the Vox Community podcast, which is uh, we have a, a, a little bitty church in North Orange County, California, and uh, we record the um, the talks from and the stories from uh, from those gatherings and put them online in the interwebs. Um, and the other thing that has been very very nice is that um, you guys are are very kind to us mm. uh, in uh, giving us uh, reviews and feedback on iTunes. Yep, we are up to ninety nine hey. reviews, which is so we just need one more. I got 99 reviews, mm-hmm. and I need one more. <laughs> um, and, 99 uh, uh, reviews and... Yep, careful. Yep. And uh, <laughs> and so there were a couple, a couple I just wanted to read out um, because uh, I thought they were they were interesting. So, so uh, this person uh, says, uh, Mike and Andy are my type of people, which it, it can't both... You can't... You have to pick... Yeah. Either Mike is your kind of person or Andy is your kind of person. I would like to see the person that is kind of uh, bi- a bit of both by Vox. Like yes. how, how do you explain to me your function? I feel like I could hang with them and have deep conversations. True. That's very true. Yeah. They need more witty banter at the beginning. Okay. All right. Now you're, we'll see if, if you stay that say that after this section of witty banter okay. and more deep talk after that. Lord, I, mm-hmm. how do we do more deep talk? Yeah. I don't even know. So make it longer, I guess. But Mike, Pearl Jam, question mark? Hmm. Um, go deep into the music of that era. All right, so first of all, Pearl Jam is deep into the music. <laughs> they define the music of that era, my friend. Hmm. And uh, yesterday was the 25th anniversary of, uh, of 10, the debut album of Pearl Jam. And, um, and so we... We have uh, when people kind of walk in, we hold we hold the doors of our of our service on Sundays, and then when they when people walk in t- or five minutes before like the start time, uh, we always have a walk in song. Yeah. And uh, and yesterday was alive, followed by Even Flow from yeah. uh, in honor of Pearl Jam. So mm-hmm. take that. Um, go deep, he says, into the music of that era. Let's have some Melvin's comments huh. or something. Okay. All right. Well, Melvin's. There it was. Definitely need some more music talk. I'd, I've shared this podcast with a lot of like-minded friends and only received a little pushback. Well, push back on the pushback, my friend. I mean, listen, don't leave us defenseless. Get out there and, and be pushing this thing on everybody. Yeah, go offend some people. Keep up the good work. And then, and then, and then he writes, I haven't typed this much in a while. <laughs> Love, angry. And then he gives his name from Portlandia, which explains oh, everything. Oh, that's so good. So, so okay, there you go. Uh, Melvin. It's over. Yes. Reviews. It's over. Nope. And then, um, and then here's one. Um, Mike is great and all, dot, dot, dot. You know, knowledge, communication, Midwest values. But let's be real here. We need more Andy. Midwest values. Shut can it. We, can we talk Shut about it. that? Shut <laughs> it. But let's be real here. We need more Andy. If you don't capture the millennials, your podcast will die. Get relevant. Get Kim X. Get saved people. Vox Pod is my jam. So, Andy, would your mom stop freaking leaving reviews? <laughs> Thanks, mom. Okay, this is ridiculous. All right, <laughs> now what we're gonna do today um, is uh, it, it's it's a little a little bit of an extension of two conversations we've been having. Really, really, hmm. uh, really, almost three. One is on the Bible and how do we interpret um, a document that a series of books, a library of books that was uh, progressively given over time in various cultural settings. Uh, how do we, how do we work that out today? It's also going to be an extension of the women in ministry conversation that we began, uh, last fall. And it's also an extension of one of the points we made with Godless, which is kind of the missionary nature of the work of God in human history, Hmm. how God works within fallen human structures, um, while planting at the same time the seeds of their overthrow. So, so, um, so what I want to do, and I've got to, I'm going to follow my notes. I usually, well, sometimes I do notes, sometimes I don't, but I've got, I've got notes for this one because I want to build a, a case 
Um, and uh, a man named David Inkstone Brewer, who is a British New Testament scholar who specializes in ancient Judaism, um, is just super helpful on stuff like this. He's got some stuff on divorce that's very interesting. Um, he's got some stuff on the the Jesus scandals. Is the name of one of his uh, of of one of his books. Um, but he did this thought experiment, which I thought was was really powerful. So I'm gonna I'm gonna adapt that, and uh, and then that'll lead us into some interesting water. So, um, so let's talk about women in modern day Saudi Arabia. All right, which is of course you know what we what you knew we were gonna talk about Andy driving it. Um, and and I'm I'm taking this from like culture websites, travel advisory websites. Um, so we're talking about burkini. Yes, yes. Well, that's in France. Um, in Saudi in Saudi Arabia, that's not even. I wish they made them for men. Let me just let me just say that. I think I'd throw one on. Um, and, and so I'm taking this not from personal experience in Saudi Arabia. Uh, I've never been, but um, on basis of uh, a bit of religious uh, um, knowledge from Islam, but also the the particular application of a particular um, uh, interpretation of Islam that Saudi Arabia uh, embraces. So um, uh, in Saudi Arabia, evidently, women uh, and men are segregated in the workplace and in all public areas. Uh, women and men are not allowed to attend public events together. Now, now some of the some of the websites are saying uh, this is improving that there are steps, but but in in like the capital and some other major cosmopolitan areas, these this is still enforced by kind of a religious police. Um, women traveling alone are not allowed to enter the country unless they will be met at the airport by a husband, a sponsor, or a male relative. Okay, so this is a very, 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 very patriarchal society. Um, the Saudi embassy advises women to dress conservatively in public, ankle-length ankle length dresses with long sleeves and not pants in many areas, particularly the capital. Women are pressured to wear a full-length black covering and to cover their heads. All right. Women in restaurants uh, not accompanied by a male relative often are not served. And religious police travel in public watching for violations of social mores. Any public display of affection uh, is considered offensive. Uh, a woman traveling with a man who is not her husband, sponsor, or mere relative, the woman can be arrested. Wow. Um, unmarried women and children require the permission of their father or male guardian um, to travel, <laughs> uh, to leave the country. Um, Saudi women are also banned from driving and need a male relative's permission to work or travel overseas. So, um, it, it, so, so someone summarized it this way: um, Every Saudi woman who's an adult, regardless of economic status, must obtain permission from her male guardian to work, travel, study, seek medical treatment, or marry. All right. So, so um, in fact, even education. Education is tailored to reinforce gender roles and what the authorities consider suitable to women's nature and future role as wives and mothers. Um, women's uh, and girls' access to education depends on the goodwill of male guardians whose permission is essential for their educational enrollment. All right, so so let's say let's say that cultural context is true. All right. Now, even if you know better and it's getting better, I, th this is a thought experiment. So let's just mm -hmm. say for the sake of argument, that's actually how it is. Now, imagine if a, um, if a Muslim woman comes to Jesus. All right. Jesus. Re and we have, we have um, tons of stories yeah. of Jesus appearing in dreams and visions to Muslim people. It's so different. Like it, it's so different the transformation stories of Muslims to Christians. Yes. Yeah. And um, and so let's say a woman in that context in, in a semi wealthy household that has servants, um, uh, and uh, and she becomes a Jesus follower. Now imagine, imagine that you you begin to read the New Testament, and you become enthralled with what Jesus. Uh, what Jesus taught about women, what the Bible teaches about women. Um, and, and we'll get to, well, doesn't it oppress women in just a second? But like, for instance, 
um, such somebody like that would become convinced that God would love her as much as uh, God loves um, men. Uh, that God loves your house servants as much as mm-hmm. God loves you. Mm-hmm. That God loves your children the same, whether they are boys and girls. Uh, this is all incredibly liberating stuff, right? There's this passage in Galatians 3. In Christ, there's neither male nor female, um, Jew or Greek, slave or free. Uh, I mean, holy cow, that's revolutionary stuff. You can imagine a woman like that being absolutely liberated from the social mores that have been oppressive to her. Um, you you could, you could uh, allow yourself and your daughter, let's say, to wear Western clothes. Um, because you see yourself now not under the the laws of that restricted clothing. Um, uh, you could even wear short skirts, t-shirts, a swimsuit uh, because you're now un- uh, under those regulations. Um, and you don't you don't have to do everything that your husband says, like you do under strict Muslim, uh, uh, strict Islamic moral code. So maybe you disagree with your husband in public. Maybe um, you question something your husband is asking you to do, but wouldn't do himself. Maybe you allow your daughter. Uh, to dress um, differently in defiance of, of her father's wishes. Um, so you have a tremendous, let's say you have a tremendous amount of freedom um, from the, the implementations and interpretations of um, Islamic morality in uh, the Saudi Arabian context, right? So let's say relative to that context, the, the new teaching of the gospel, uh, the, the testament of... of um, my goodness, I'm having trouble with the English language. The good news of the Gospels or the New Testament was what I was trying to say um, is actually very liberating for you socially. Socially, yeah. Now, you have tremendous freedom. Now, now some things are still a crime in in Saudi Arabia. So you 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 still wouldn't get behind the wheel of a car if you're not allowed to do that. Um, or if you decide to buy and drink alcohol, you could be arrested or. Um, but you know, wearing Western clothes, wearing pants, I mean, isn't a crime. It's, it's an offense against the religious police, but it's not a legal crime against, uh, the legal police. Um, you're, you know, maybe you, um, maybe you dress differently in defiance of your husband. That's not a technically a crime or, or, or maybe you treat your house servant because they still have uh, paid servants. Uh, maybe you treat your house servant more as a, of an equal now. Uh, that's not a crime, but again, all those things—the dress, the the way of speaking and carrying oneself as a woman, the treating a servant as a as a social equal—all of those things would be highly, highly offensive um, in this thought experiment uh, for the the greater community around this woman who's now accepted Jesus. So, your Muslim friends would be scandalized by this. So they they might see you dressing in a Western way, which seems immoral. To them, so you you're becoming scandalous. You're becoming immoral. You've you've you know, they may accuse you of prostitution. That they see you treating your servant as a social equal, and your servant treating you as a social equal, which is the greater offense. Mm. And and all of a sudden that that's that's a violation. Um, they see you talking back to your husband or talking with other men that aren't your relatives. I mean, both of those are incredibly offensive. They see your children not obeying the wishes of their husband, let's say, um, in, in the way that they dress or entertainment they consume. Some might think that you've taken up an immoral lifestyle. Some of them might think that you're no longer subservient to your husband, that you're encouraging your children to rebel, and that if, and that if in general people adopted the Christian teaching that you have adopted, that it would be corrosive and corruptive for society. It would undermine everything about the society uh, up to that point. Mm-hmm. All right, so you, so you can see in, in that you have this tension between the freedoms that the woman feels under Jesus and the concern the, the community that does not share her view of those freedoms would have about her corroding the morals of Islamic society. Mm-hmm. Make sense? Yes. So this is a thought experiment. Yep. Um, and so, so the concern from the communities of this sort of thing catches on. It's going to undermine Islamic values, morality, uh, particularly among the young. 
There will be disrespect for elders, a lack of obedience to those who are superior. Um, the, the, they see Western dress as going hand in hand with Western excess and immorality. Um, uh, the fears that women will end up committing adultery, getting drunk, even driving cars. All of this is evil. And it all happened because you became a Christian. Okay, so that's, that's how the thought would go. That's how the thinking would go. So, if you were writing a letter to a, to a small community of Muslim women in Saudi Arabia, how would you encourage them to practice their new Jesus following in a way that at the same time acknowledged their liberty, but called them to practice it in a way that still acknowledged the norms of the society in which they lived so that people would not be offended unnecessarily by their behavior, okay, and by the exercising of their freedom. So you would advise them to restrict their freedom for the sake of the Christian message, Right. If, mm-hmm. if you're going to be offended, don't be offended because I'm wearing pants or I'm driving. Be offended because we said that Jesus is Lord or that Jesus mm-hmm. died and has risen again or right. whatever, because those are very offensive statements. Right. You're, right? you're orient them to what matters. The gospel, right. the right. gospel itself in that context is offensive enough, mm-hmm. let alone adding to it by dressing and da 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 da. Right. right. So, so. And, and 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 you could try to you could try to deal with with this in one of two ways. So let's say you're writing and giving advice to this woman and a group of other uh, uh, formerly Muslim women. You could you could say, okay, here's all the reasons why it's okay that you're wearing pants, and here's all the reasons why it's okay that you're driving a car. Just because you don't wear a headdress doesn't mean you're a prostitute. A lack of subordination doesn't mean lack of respect or lack of love. Society won't fall to pieces because women think for themselves. I mean, you could make these very deeply rationed, uh, rational, impassioned arguments, um, but most people wouldn't listen to you because... The, 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 the judgment that would be made in virtue of wearing pants and driving would be so negative that they'd never get to your words, yeah. okay, in, yeah. this, in this context. Mm-hmm. It's hard enough preaching the gospel uh, in a Muslim society because they already think the, the, the Christian message is immoral and they think it's blasphemous, saying that God became a man and died is a terrible blasphemy. And... Um, speaking of Jesus as God and God as God, um, as there being more than one God, um, is a terrible blasphemy in Islam as well. It's hard enough to explain that without having to also explain all the freedoms we have in Christ. Mm-hmm. Okay, now, so so maybe you would, so so maybe instead of, hey, just explain to them what's going on, maybe your advice would be, hey, uh, Jesus followers... Um, wear, wear, wear respectful clothing, um, even in private. Wear respectful clothing. Um, and women, listen to your husbands. Don't respect um, and submit to your husbands. Yeah, keep listening to your husbands. Yes. Keep submitting. Yeah. Yep. Children, um, respect and submit to your fathers. Um, you know, s- servants, obey your masters. Don't talk back to them. Um but you'd also add some caveats, right? Because of, of what Jesus has done. You, you might say some things like, hey, uh, husbands, um, if you're a Christian husband, um, you should respect your wife and, and sacrifice yourself for her. Um, listen to her opinions. Um, if you're a Christian father, don't over-discipline your children with, with silly rules. If you're a Christian um, master, um, don't overwork or mistreat your servants because in God's sight, they're equally loved and valued. All right. So suppose, see that in the thought experiment, here's this woman that comes to Jesus who gathers with a collection of other women there. They write to you for advice, um, in this incredible cultural situation in which you, in, in your passion, let's say you're a missionary. Let's say you're an ambassador for Jesus. You're super impassioned about this. What are you going to do for the sake of the witness of these women in that country. You're gonna ask them to restrict their freedom for the sake of the furtherance of the message. 
correct? Yeah. By exercising their freedom, they're unnecessarily offending people and they'll never get a hearing. Mm-hmm. So you write something called a household code. Here's how we should conduct ourselves in a house. How husbands and wives should treat each other, how parents and children should treat each other, and how slaves and masters should treat each other. All right? Right. That's what you do, let's say, in the 21st century. Now, the reason this thought experiment, if, and, and you're probably seeing this coming, the reason this thought experiment is interesting to me, because it's exactly what happened in the New Testament. It is almost precisely why in Colossians, in uh, Ephesians, and in First Timothy and Titus, there are household instructions that seem to us incredibly restrictive. Yeah. That include the wives submit to husbands, that include mm-hmm. slaves submit to masters, that include children submit to mm-hmm. fathers, right? And we go, oh my goodness, look at how oppressive this whole thing is. I want to argue, uh, first of all, that the same impulse that would govern our advice to a Muslim woman in Saudi Arabia is the same advice and impulse that governed the instructions written to fledgling Christian communities in a Roman empire dominated Mm -hmm. by a household code that was defined by Aristotle. We'll get to that in a second. And that secondly, what the Christians did with the household code sowed the seeds of the overthrow of the household cult eventually, while at the same time working within the structures. Mm -hmm. And the reason they worked within the structures is because they wanted the message to gain a hearing. Okay? Mm -hmm. So when, when wives are told, wear head coverings in church, okay? When wives are told to be silent, and if you have questions, ask your husbands at home. When Paul says, I do not permit women to have authority over men, and to teach them. All of these, I'm going to argue, are examples of the same missionary concern that we would have about the witness of the gospel that addressed cultural concerns that were real, powerful, and significant in the first century. Mm. In the same way, if someone were going to Afghanistan and said, hey, um, should I pack short, and she's and, and, and she's a woman, and she's going to go as a missionary, should I pack short shorts and a tank top? Mm-hmm. You're going to say no. Right. You're going to say, no, no, eat the food, wear what people wear, honor the customs. This is what we do. Mm-hmm. Right? So mm-hmm. this is what Paul, Peter, and, and I think ultimately they trace it back to Jesus. This is the impulse that sits behind some of the New Testament pieces that that people find very offensive. Yeah. Okay? So this is so, this is so big. So big, but so good. So it's again, it's it's podcast number forty four, my high school number of football, and that's why it's big and chunky. Now, um, Paul lived, uh, Peter lived, uh, Peter, Paul, and Mary all lived in a first century that was governed by um, Roman law, and in Roman law, the father, the eldest father was the head of the household he had the he had the and this is legal all right this was legal stuff he had the power of life and death we have instances in jesus's time of um of a master beating a slave to death uh for um drinking some wine and uh and in the and and so there was an outcry on behalf of the the slave uh, but the the ruling was no. The the master has the legal power to do that. The master had the legal power to not accept babies into. Um, oh my goodness! This is of course Mrs. Erie. Hello, Mrs. Erie. Hey, it's me. Hey, we're podcasting. Oh, you are. Of course. Already? Yeah. Okay. All right. I'll call you later. So so what so what happened? All right, in the first century is um, Aristotle had written a very influential book. Um, He was a Greek philosopher in the 4th century BC and um, had had argued that that cities, nations, uh, they needed to be well-ordered. And and, and the the well-orderedness of the state came from the well-orderedness of the home. The homes in the state, and and again, not state like Kentucky, but like the state, the nation. 
and that the well-ordering of the home was based around the well-ordering of three relationships, male-female, husband-wife, in other words, children-slave, <laughs> no, parents-children, <laughs> parents, hello, slave. Sorry, parents, hello, slave. hello, uh, and uh, master-slave, okay? Mm-hmm. This was... This was not only embraced at this point in the Roman Empire, but um, Caesar Augustus had even began to codify some of these concerns into Roman law, and that's a whole different that's a whole different podcast. But the big thing you need to know is this: um, this is what morality looked like when you would talk about. So when we have our culture war, like over the definition of marriage, mm-hmm. right? Um, they would have their culture war over the definition of home. And there was happening in the Roman um, in the Roman world at this time, there there was uh, there were deep concerns about they were called new Roman women. And uh, and new Roman women were Roman women who became as immoral as their husbands, because their husbands never owed their wives fidelity. It was just assumed that a Roman man would have a mistress, uh, would be able to have sex with with uh, young boys. Um, I mean, this was just kind of the the given sexual environment. Well, Roman women began to exercise some of those same sexual freedoms in the way that they dressed, um, in the way that they talked, in the way that they treated men, in the way that they courted men they weren't related to. Um, and so this was a huge moral concern in the first century. All right, so there was a revival of this Aristotelian household thinking in the first century. And it was thought that if everyone followed the ordered model, um, then society would be moral. And so the the code, the Aristotelian code, became synonymous with uh, protecting Rome and protecting mm-hmm. Roman culture. Mm-hmm. So so that was, that was like politically ordained down from Augustus, like we're going to take this philosophy and this is what it's supposed to look like in well, the not, to not, that level? Or not that... completely, but like Augustus, he 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 started mandating remarriage mm. in the case of widows. He started mandating childbearing. Um, Augustus had this really interesting uh, social program he was carrying out in Rome. And there's, there's a lot more to say about that. But sitting behind all of this was this household code. And the household code... Um, was 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 uh, sacred, and and so um, any woman like who refused to subject herself to her husband was assumed to be asserting her right to take lovers and to live in immorality. All right, so subservience to your husband was um, an indication of sexual fidelity. Okay, it wasn't just she's a doormat. Although uh, Aristotle did held, uh, hold that women were of kind of a weaker nature. Um, less rational nature, but it was also connected to, to immorality. So if you were if you were impertinent with your husband, you were considered immoral sexually, and this was a huge concern in the mm-hmm. Roman Empire. Um, or any slave who refused to show proper respect was just assumed uh, to be rebellious and to be stealing goods, or to be you know to to be plotting some sort of uh, violence against. Um, his or her master. I mean, big, big assumptions were packed into this thing. So what Peter and Paul do in particular, all right? So first Peter, um, uh, uh, Titus, um, Colossians and Ephesians, uh, and, and, and some of first Timothy, you see this happening. Um, they advised that Christians should follow the Aristotelian household code because that was the household code that was viewed by Rome as being moral, okay? Mm-hmm. That they're not following the household code would actually undermine the witness that was already being undermined because they didn't share the worship of the Roman gods. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when Peter and Paul quote the household codes, they do it virtually uh, using the same words, some of the same words even the Aristotle used, um, but in each case they give caveats that plant the seed for the overthrow of the household code. Um, so for instance, in Colossians, Paul quotes uh, Aristotle and then adds comments that reflect the new creation and freedom we have in Jesus. So wives be subordinate, but husbands should love their wives without anger. Now this was a huge deal. Did husbands- you mean wives be submissive? You said subordinate. Yes, submissive. Okay. But their submissiveness was a sign of their subordination. Okay, I see. All right. 
Um, so, so another example, um, children obey their parents, should obey their parents, but Paul will add, fathers should not exasperate their children. So unnecessarily rule them that their children are provoked to rebellion. Mm. Um, slaves obey, but masters should be fair because God is the master of both the master and the slave. Mm -hmm. Okay, so do you see, while at the same time it's honoring the household code and the definition of morality in that day, it's also planting seeds that will lead eventually to the overflow of the codes that it's working within. Mm -hmm. yeah. So husbands, love your wives. Okay, that was radical in the first century. Slaves... Masters, treat your slaves with kindness because you're a slave to Jesus. Massively revolutionary. Uh, fathers, don't exas uh, exasperate your children. No one was doing parenting seminars in the first century, right? Mm -hmm. Fathers just had all kinds of power. So the fact that they were that they were adjusting, they were modifying, they were working within the structures, but they were adapting them to the new creation reality brought about by Jesus is a is of massive significance. So, for instance, uh, and and here's the here's the really big part. Um, the the Jewish leaders of the first century were doing the exact same thing. So so for, when Christianity first launched, it was considered a sect of Judaism. It wasn't until decades later that the synagogue and the church became separate, and there there began to exist animosity and persecution. Um, and so, so there we have parallels uh, in the first century of Jewish leaders telling their followers to follow the exact same household codes because of their witness of Rome or to Rome. So, for instance, um, Josephus, a Roman historian, told Palestinian Jews in the first century, wives should be obedient, but husbands should only direct her and not humiliate her. Mm. Um, children should show honor to parents because parents are looking after them. Uh, slaves should submit, but masters should not sexually mistreat them. Mm. A man named Philo told Egyptian Jews in the first century, wives serve husbands, but husbands should not be violent to them. Parents have authority over children, but to protect them and treat them gently. Servants must submit, but masters must not sexually mistreat them. So the Jews were quoting the same moral codes that Paul and Peter were quoting. All right, That's how influential these moral codes were in the first century. And you see both Jewish leaders and Christian leaders nuancing the household codes around Torah teaching, or in this case, the teaching uh, of the new creation in Jesus. Make sense? Yeah. Now, some Christians were then confused by this seeming double standard. They would say, well, doesn't Paul say in Christ there is no uh, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, no male nor female, we're all one in Christ Jesus. If that's so, then why should slaves submit to masters and why should mm -hmm. wives submit to husbands? Right. They want the revolutionary overthrow. They right. want it to be like, right. give us like the the political stance to just stop all of this yes. because this is our reality. Yes, yeah. and so so some folks will be very critical of the New Testament and say, mm -hmm. why didn't it overthrow throw slavery? Right. They'll be critical of the New Testament and say, why did it reinforce patriarchy? Right. They'll be critical of the New Testament and say, why did it, why does it use the word submit? Yeah. They'll be they'll be critical of this. And 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 so here's the big like here's the big point. Paul answers the questions. Peter and Paul both answer the questions about why they're to honor the code within new creation um redefinitions and so for instance i'm going to read i'm going to read several passages where paul explains his thinking so disagree with it if you want mm -hmm. but this i'm just trying to show that there is a cultural background here that is not here today oh yeah and and or not even considered when the argument's presented right yeah. so so we'll get oh we'll get to the juicy implications in just a moment andy so so peter um so paul says to uh Paul says to Titus, all right, Titus is a pastor dealing with a congregation who has questions about this. Paul says to Titus, he should teach women to be subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Okay? It's not because husbands are better than wives, and it's not because women are inferior to men. It's because in that society, the way the gospel would get a hearing is if it was believed it wasn't eroding family values. Hmm. All right. So, so Paul says to Titus, teach 
Christian women to restrict their liberty so that the gospel will not be dishonored. All right. And this is massive. Or Paul does this to slaves. I mean, think about the implication of this. He says to Titus, teach slaves to be subject to their masters and everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them. This is all household code stuff, but to show that they can be fully trusted. Why? So that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. Mm. Oh, my word. Or he writes to Timothy. uh, All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. So the concern was, Rome's already suspicious enough. We're not worshiping the Roman gods. We're not honoring the Roman holidays. Um, People are now starting to infiltrate Christian communities to figure out like what's actually going on in them. And so Paul says, listen, when when your congregations have questions about how to conduct their households, follow Aristotle with the following nuance. And then he gives them nuance. Mm -hmm. He honors... He honors and works within the society's understanding of morality while at the same time planting the seeds for its eventual revolution and overthrow. Mm -hmm. It's absolutely, absolutely brilliant. So Peter says this to wives um, who have non-Christian husbands. So the wives were saying, well, we should divorce our husbands. Peter says... In the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won over without a word by the behavior of their wives. So Paul and Peter are missionaries. Their agenda is to give Jesus a hearing in an incredibly pagan world. How do they do that? They they are defending against the charge that following Jesus will erode Roman society because if Rome is if, if Rome becomes convinced of that then whatever freedoms the Christians have are going to go away dramatically and in fact we see this uh, in the 60s um, Nero seventy uh, percent of Rome burned in a in a massive massive fire and um, and it was thought that Nero himself, started the fire, but needed a scapegoat. And so he blamed Christians. And this began just this huge persecution mm. uh, against the church. And it was viewed as a superstition because, you know, they were taking communion, which they thought was cannibalism. And I mean, it was just the, mm-hmm. all this interesting, but, but Paul is constantly worried and Peter's constantly worried about how the faith is perceived from outsiders. And so he says, um, uh, you should do this, this this household code stuff. Wives to husbands, children to parents, slaves to masters. All right? You should do it because the word of God would be dishonored by your lack of doing it. And so um, it's not because it was wrong uh, to express their equality. Because clearly the gospel is that they're equal in every way, shape, and form and should be treated as such. But it was that people would misunderstand it in the same way the religious police in Saudi Arabia would misunderstand it if you become a follower of Jesus and one day you're in all black with your head covered and the next day you're wearing Western clothes, pants, and driving a car. And the only difference between the two days is that you now follow Jesus. Jesus is never going to get a straight hearing in that culture. Now, now in a culture like ours that is totally in love in an idolatrous way with individual rights and expressions, this way of thinking itself seems oppressive. Yeah. Do you mean I can't do this because of what other people might think about Jesus? Yes, that is exactly right. If you're a Jesus follower, we are to live in a way that people would see our good deeds and glorify God in heaven. Mm Mm-hmm. And that it's not see our right theology. It's not see our rightness in our political views. It's to see our good deeds and give glory to the Father in heaven. Meaning our individual rights are now to be submitted to how beautiful Jesus looks when people look at us. That's the point. Mm -hmm. And, and, um, (laughs) and, and in the first century, people were starting to curse the name of Jesus as, um, as eroding family values. That's the funny part, mm-hmm. is that Christianity was considered anti-family. Mm. 
So slaves weren't obeying and weren't showing due honor. Um, so people weren't hearing the good news of the gospel. Wives weren't submitting properly, so they weren't hearing the good news of the gospel. Um, children weren't obeying and respecting, so people didn't hear the good news of the gospel. For Paul, getting the message of Jesus out was the most important thing. Um, and so they they had misgivings about the the code, and you see that. I mean, you see. I mean, we could go into how revolutionary it was that Paul would say to husbands in Ephesians, "Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her." Like the the revolutionary part, as we've said before, wasn't wives submit to your husbands. That was that was normal thinking for the day. What was revolutionary was husbands love and respect your wives mm-hmm. and sacrifice yourself for her. I mean, this. We got nothing in comparison to what this would have felt like. And that is why there were more women followers of Jesus in the first century than men. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because in following Jesus, men lost a lot of power. Because their 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 household dominance, even though it was reinforced in one sense, it was uh, it was bonded and bordered and submitted to something bigger, namely obedience to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, it's just absolutely fascinating. So what does this mean? Um, what does this mean for us? Is the big question. So, uh, a couple of thoughts. First, and we've already we've already said this: the impulse to make Jesus beautiful um, is was was paramount in the way Paul instructed um, his teachers to teach their churches, and the way he interacted with the churches themselves. So that's that's big point number one. That in the moral teaching of the New Testament, followers of Jesus are called to restrict their freedom for the sake not only of weaker Christians, newer Christians, less mature Christians, but also for the sake of the witness of our world. Mm -hmm. So it is perfectly within my right as a follower of Jesus to drive a Ferrari. Um, But as a pastor of a church plant, is that wise? Is that, I mean, no, of course not, right? Um, people are sacrificing um, to help fund this church plant. And and what does driving a Ferrari do? Mm-hmm. Well, we would just say, well, it looks bad, right? Uh, I mean, maybe that's a dumb example. But but there are, I think, tons of practical implications of, uh, of how this might work. And we'll get to those in a second after I want to do big point number two. Big point number two then is this. When you get to wives submit to your husbands, wives be silent in church. I don't permit women to teach in church. Women should wear head coverings in church. I want us to understand that, yes, there is a deep um, theological tradition that reads those passages as universal um, moral teachings that should be obeyed today. And I have a lot of respect for uh, the scholarship on that side, and and these people aren't Jesus haters, and these people aren't women haters, uh, nothing like that. Uh, I disagree with them for lots of reasons. I think the arc of uh, the uh, the New Testament is to get us back to Eden, and in Eden, there was no hierarchy, and some theologically will disagree with that. Um, secondly, I think what Jesus did. Uh, what Paul does, they provide clear counterexamples. If you take the moral teaching just on the face of it, I never allow women to teach. Uh, women should be silent, and yet they're prophesying. We have a woman apostle. We have Priscilla and Aquila who instruct a man named Apollo. So I think they're counterexamples. But the big thing is this. I think the instructions that Paul gives there in those instances all had to do with this issue. How do we make the gospel attractive to unbelievers? And that there were certain cultural practices that needed to be followed so that the church would not be tarnished. So in the same way, I'd say to somebody in Saudi Arabia, hey, wear the traditional garb. What, what, what cost is, even though you're free in Jesus, as a woman, what cost is it? Is it worth offending people who never hear now or to just wear the thing, mm-hmm. right? Um, or someone going to Afghanistan, yeah, put the tank top away. And wear the traditional garb. Of course you would do that, mm-hmm. right? Cover your head. Yep. Of course you would do that. Yep. Uh, when we went to Israel, um, there were sites where you couldn't wear shorts, which was a, such a bummer for me. <laughs> um, and and um, and they were police. There were moral police that were there, who were looking at um, cleavage and just mm. how low. 
uh, Westerners wore their garments, and mm. and uh, you would have to cover up with a scarf or whatever. Also an issue for you. <laughs> my moobs. Yes, my moobs can uh, cause many to stumble. Um, and, and so, so w- what do you do? Well, do you just say, oh, no, let's offend them over. Let's pick this battle. Let's, yeah, let's die on this. Totally. No, no, you say, okay, we'll, we'll do this. Even mm-hmm. though internally I'm like, no, come on, really? Yeah. Um, and so, so, so much of the objection we have to some of the passages in the, in the New Testament is oppressive or whatever, were actually revolutionary for their day mm-hmm. and their genius, mission, genius missionary strategies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so I want to reframe some concerns. And, and, and you, know, you hear this from people who read the New Testament, like Godless or whoever, and say, listen, it makes you a worse kind of person. It's a, it's, it make, the, the morality of the New Testament is woefully inadequate. And I, and I keep coming back to why I don't, I don't think we're clearly understanding what the moral teaching is. Sure. Because the moral teaching is far more radical than we're giving it credit mm-hmm. for. And you can't just flatly take wives, submit to your husbands, and not do any work to the verse before it that says um, you should submit to each other. And then secondly, the culture that was written into. And then thirdly, all the instructions to husbands that are given after that command. I mean, you just can't rip the thing out and flatly apply it. Right. Same with, same with te- the, 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 I don't permit women to have authority mm-hmm. and to teach. That is an absolute abuse of the verse. Cause I've had this happen to me when a woman is taught, they just paste that verse in an email and hit send. It doesn't work like that. Right. It doesn't work like that. Right. So, so, cause I could pull out a, a verse out of context and just find anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so the context, the contextual work that we have to do, it's a pain. That's why no one does it. Mm-hmm. Right. You can't just embrace 2000 years and just pretend like, oh, it's English, it's in English and here I am right. and I'm enlightened and I can read English. And, and it's just a one-to-one correspondence between what I think this passage means to me and what it means. Yeah. That's not the way texts work. And no, and no text, I think, has ever provided that type of like basic literal application. Like who looks back at Greek philosophy and does the same thing? You know, it's like there's still conversations around sure. the ideas and like all of that becomes a greater I'm understanding looking, of how it even works. I'm looking in the home office and there are, there are probably a thousand books. The vast majority of those books have to do with words that are written in the Bible. Mm-hmm. So that's how rich the conversations are. Yeah. And that's how varied the interpretations are. Mm-hmm. Now, now we can get into the conversation later about, well, are all interpretations equally valid? No. Um, how do you know? Like, like I hear my, my favorite Bible teacher say that, no, the Bible teaches that women are to be um, silent in church and to wear head coverings and to never teach. But I hear you saying it's okay. How do I believe? Which do I believe? Right. That's a whole other set sure. of conversations. But what I was interested in doing is kind of following the little rabbit trail from Godless about the missionary God and how the missionary mm-hmm. God works in history and mm-hmm. why there aren't these massive social overthrows immediately. Yeah. Go ahead. It an- Well, to me, it also answers the other question that Jesus failed to properly articulate his mission, mm. you know, if if this is what he intended for the world to look like in a positive way. It's like, well, all that to be said, I think that it's like through all of this work, through all of this scholarship, through all of this that's available to understand the context and what's happening in culture, it becomes understood and it becomes clear to what his mission actually was. Yes. Like, of course, if we take our just very expressionist, very liberty freedom mindset and and take it to what Jesus wrote, then sure. Like, just like you said, we can find contradiction. We can find ways that things don't seem to work. But all of that to me just digs up. We're misunderstanding exactly what we're reading. And right. this brings clarity and see, oh, that actually brings me a very clear picture of what Jesus's mission was. Right. So, in th- so that in that case, that that actually works really well with answering that question, too. I hope. I, I mean, the it's so interesting i when i when i first graduated from college in uh, 2010 um no no laughter there no laughter uh we can smell the lies the big yeah seriously i used to do debates on college campuses it was so it was i just loved it i loved we called them open forums and and um 
people would just ask questions. I mean, it, there, there were just these free flowing kind of Q and A things, and and uh, and and the questions all, all the questions were, um, how do you know Jesus was God? How do you know the Bible's true? Um, what do you do about hell and sna- talking snakes and donkeys? Um, and- well, now, now, yeah, I mean, there was a little <laughs> of that, but it was a lot of how do I know? Okay. Uh, how do I know the resurrection happened? How do I know God exists? These days, the objections are almost all moral. Mm-hmm. So, so how can the angry Old Testament God? How can you say the angry Old Testament God is a God of love? Mm-hmm. How can you? Um, when, when LGBTQ people have been so harmed by the church's teaching, how can you say that you love and include everybody? Um, uh, look at the, the pettiness of some of the teaching in the New Testament. I mean, isn't this so, so the, the, the questions now are so it's, it's like we've advanced and we see God as this backward, um, uh, you know, uh, woman hating, um, anti-sex, mm. uh, anti, you know, anti-people kind of God, and it's just so fascinating because it's an entirely different, it's an entirely different set of questions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Because people, I could give my seventeen-point, you know, proof for the resurrection, and people go, mm-hmm. so what? Right. <laughs> right. I mean, that that means nothing. But the morality conversation now that one gets everybody, everybody's yeah, yeah. juices going. So it, it's interesting. It's interesting to me that. What shifted isn't the defense of God. It's the defense of God's goodness. It's not the defense of uh, Jesus. It's the defense of Paul's use of Jesus. Mm-hmm. It's uh, it's just interesting. It's yeah. just interesting. So I yes. So I, I, have yes, two, I have two thoughts that I I want I want you to to speak uh, on. Oh not, boy, not speak. How long are address. we? How long are we? We're right at, at fifty two. Okay, we got, we got a few a couple. All minutes. right, all right. Okay, it it seems what I'm hearing is this too is that. For us to carry over a progressive mindset in our modern day, when we look at the New Testament like this, it actually presents a model and not a set of like hard fact instructions for how to apply what was applied then. Because if we're it does like, both, it does both. Like in, in certain, there's a balance between certain things Correct. that are are that non negotiable, non negotiable, and then just like the the. The, yeah. the thought experiment we did in the beginning. Yes. Of course, we would. It's yes. kind of like the when in Rome idea from a Christian mindset. Yeah. You know, it's like it doesn't to partake and experience these things that are happening to honor the culture so that the gospel can go farther is a, is is a worthwhile sacrifice of the freedoms you hold in your heart in Jesus but right. they don't compromise right you know the freedom that you have because of your what you're trying to carry through situation yeah so so one so one um, writer on uh, on women in ministry um, and for those of you that are new to this conversation, there there is a deep tradition that says women cannot teach, women cannot be pastors, women can you know it's it's men cannot be elders, so on, so on, so on. Um, and, and and so I, I was reading one author who simply said, well, if if the concern is uh, what best advances the gospel, does restricting women best advance the gospel, or does it does it uh, restrict the gospel? Mm-hmm. And and he said purely on those terms. You should absolutely um, allow women every every role in the church. Now, I, I I believe that for other reasons, but I thought it was an interesting application of the impulse, the model, in your words, of of what this could look like. Now, now you can of course abuse this. You could say, well, listen, totally. Lots of people would find Jesus attractive um, if um, Jesus never talked about hell. So let's strip the hell part away. Um, lots of people would find Jesus attractive if he just affirmed us exactly as we are and never called us to repentance. Mm-hmm. Let's take that part away. And people will call this the social gospel. Like that's the right. Or, of the... Yes. That Jesus makes no demands on us. Right. Um, and and so, yes, we, we, we are clearly talking about the gospel that Jesus preached, which was reconsider your entire way of life because the kingdom of God is now present and available in the world through Jesus, the king. Yeah, right. That's that was the message, okay. and 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 so there was God's part, which was we while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God moves first. God's relentless. He loves us. He pursues us. But there's then our part, which is the the reconsidering, the turning, the abandoning of um, of the idols that 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 call out for worship and the embracing of the one true God I mean so so this way of thinking of course is boundaried by the message mm-hmm. <laughs> you're proclaiming so you can't right. you can't invalidate the message by the method you use to proclaim it so there are so so like for me 
you can't um, and this is where you know you get the big conversations about the LGBTQ community because to to say um, as some have have said is listen we're we're at another moment you remember when Peter had that vision in the book of Acts where uh, Peter a very scrupulous Jew was shown three times unclean animals that the Jewish Old Testament had ruled out as unclean. And God reveals three times. He shows him unclean animals and says, Peter, take and eat these. And and no, Lord, I've never done that. I've never eaten unclean animals. And then finally, God says, well, don't consider um, unclean what I have now declared clean. Mm. And Jesus makes this point in, in Mark's gospel that Jesus declares all foods clean, which is this radical, radical, radical thing. But point is... There are some who are saying that that exact same thing has happened now with our gay brothers and sisters. That there has been a vision of full inclusion and uh, and that we should do that for the sake of the gospel. So so here's an instance where the application of this principle gets gets dicey and lots of lots of us are wrestling with and disagreeing with each other over how how we do that. Um and and uh you know when when uh, the church decided not to take divorce very seriously. Uh, well, I guess that makes Jesus more attractive. <laughs> um, so, so you have, I mean, you, you, have, you have these very interesting uh, um, conversations that flow out of this because it's mm-hmm. not just a unilateral principle. Right. It's bounded by the message you're proclaiming and that there, are, there is some teaching in the New Testament that is utterly and absolutely universal mm-hmm. um that that is to be uh respected and guarded too yeah. does that does that yeah help? No, absolutely it's in the last thing that i had in mind was for me this is a way of taking this conversation seriously in that when we talk about this these letters that are being written to household rules and that can you make some comments just quickly on the size of the influence that ended up happening because of this like because this isn't we're not like nowadays we can say how massive um christian influence has upon the world right at its time this was nothing it was like a speck on the earth a speck so it's like and how long was the roman empire around oh thousands thousands of years right america's been around how long like 1500 okay so it's we it's america's been around for almost 300 yeah for 300 so when you really kind of pair the ratios of like population to influence and then look at what happened and then now what we have and how flipped that is you have to look at the entire thing is incredibly radical so you can't just take it at like well i'll just open up this book and expect that it's going to give me flat answers on how to just live my life when it's like everything you're pointing out which even for me is, is so amazing is just these you know close looks at the cultural influence that it had and what made it so radical in such a giant population that was saying this is not allowed. But in 300 years, you know, Rome embraces, you know, uh, some form of Christianity and we can debate whether or not that was legit or whatever. But yeah, I mean, this little, so you talk, you start with 120 Jews in a room on the day of Pentecost and then it's millions in 300 (laughs) years. Yeah. And um, and to the point now where family codes, according to Christians, have been embraced by America. So mm-hmm. when those family codes are eroding, it's we've got to make our country great again or Christian again or whatever again. Mm-hmm. And so it's interesting now that the subversive place isn't in the traditional Christian view, the, the subversive place are in all the ways now that other agendas, other minorities, other... Um, other teachings mm. are now subverting the Christian, the traditional Christian teaching on household. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. so that that whole interplay is so interesting because you can make the argument that Christianity is only effective when it's on the margins, when it's never in power. It was never meant to be a power religion. It was never meant to be a political, mm-hmm. in the sense of um, aligned with a party or a candidate or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, the gospel is always political because it says Jesus is Lord. So that means Trump is not, Hillary's not, Obama's not, blah, blah, blah. Um, but there, there's another sense in which um, the gospel was never meant to be the center of a culture. The gospel was mm. always meant um, to be a movement uh, among hearts that were open. And, and coercion was never to be used. Guilt was never to be used. Fear was never to be used. 
Um, it was to be winsome. It was to be lived. It was to be compellingly presented um, in, in thoughtful terms, yes, but in also it was to be compellingly lived. We were always supposed to provide an alternative to the way the world worked. And what happened when Christianity got power is that the way the world work became the way the world worked became Christianized. Yeah. So the church became, it was they called it the handmaiden of the state, where our job was just to baptize war um, as a as a Christian thing, to baptize consumerism as a Christian thing, to baptize whatever whatever culture valued as a Christian thing. And, and now that Christians have been moved, have been removed from the center of culture, how do we become that, that, that community in exile oh, that provides so that compelling alternative? Yeah. Um, and so this is, you know, I think, for, I think for, for me, the most compelling thing these days is, is the picture of, of what exile is going to look like. Um, and, and that's why I don't spend a lot of time having patience and sympathy for people who are just wailing over the loss of the culture war. We have lost. The Christian culture war should have never been fought. I'm glad it's over. I'm thrilled that we lost. Um, people will be so offended by that because our country is going to hell in a handbasket, blah, 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 blah. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm excited because following Jesus will now actually cost something. I'm excited because um, the, the, as the world embraces its secular ideals, the church now is forced to present an alternative in ways it's, it's not had to be in my, in my lifetime. Mm. And, um, and uh, the church no longer having social approval means when social approval through social media is so incredibly important, um, uh, means now that we, we actually begin to taste for the first time in, in, uh, in American kind of history, what it's like to be excluded, um, what we've done to so many minorities mm-hmm. when we were in power. Now we're getting a taste of that sort of exile, that sort of social disapproval. And, and I think all of those things are things that will force us to rearticulate, to reimagine. And the church has done this every, there's no fear here because the church has done this in every cultural environment imaginable. Right. Where if you want, if you want to kill the church, simple, make it the state religion, right? Go to Sweden, go to Denmark, go to Norway, where it's the state religion, do it. If you want to make Christianity flourish, then persecute it. And go to mm. Russia and go to uh, China, yeah. and uh, and the church explodes. And so, so under undergirding all of these moral issues conversations is this deep, a, a dawning awareness among some of us that hey, we're in exile right now, hmm. and how we behave in exile is different than how we behave when we're in the center of culture. Oh. And, and so, so how Jesus following looks has to matter more now than it did before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's a good thing. Yeah. I think that's a radically yeah. good thing. So anyway, all that is to say, uh, Andy, your questions are insightful. They're, they are articulately stated. Um, the Chemex um is is a metaphor for what you do to this podcast that's right you filter down to its best essence absolutely the many words and the many coffee grounds of yours truly yes Yes. all right well holy cow if we don't get in trouble for this one i don't know what else we can do um (laughs) i think there's still some stuff out there (laughs) uh okay you're right so so anyway thoughts the goal and 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 i just i feel so compelled the goal is never for you to agree with me that i could be dead wrong about all of this and and um a buddy of mine said um i think he was quoting dallas willard who said you know i figure i'm wrong about 20 percent 20 percent of the time in what i say the problem is i don't know which 20 percent <laughs> and so so great but the the vox the tagline we have for vox is talking about anything and uh and so we we just feel compelled to step into some of these things and and provide maybe an alternative reading and see what happens so as always we are unbelievably grateful for the permission you give us to step into your life it's it's 
we're just amazed by the emails we get and the comments we receive and how varied an audience we have. And I just, I just think it's outstanding. So we're thrilled. We are really thrilled to do this. We really are. We're deeply honored. So um, let's do a blessing, Andy. Yep. Let's do it. I got it wrong in, uh, in our gathering yesterday. I think yesterday. I can do it. All right, do it. All right. All right, here we go. This is big. <laughs> this is big. I had, to, I had to adjust my chair. Oh. Oh my gosh, I forgot the second line. I, I totally had it in my head. Oh. And now I got it. Okay, I got it. I got it. I got it. All right. Okay, here we go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Yep. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. Ooh, that's good. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. That's big. And give you peace in these days. Oh! I add the in these days part. It took a year. You know what, Andy? I'm so <laughs> proud of you. I'm I, terrible at memorizing words. Yes. In general. I don't know music lyrics. No. I don't care. I could tell you the riff. I can right. tell you the beat. Got yeah. all that. Words, terrible. Well, then this is a big day. This is a big deal for me. Now, we are eight eight weeks away from the one-year anniversary of the Vox podcast. So um, we're going to crack open a Coors Light. Um, we're going we're gonna to wear cargo shorts and listen in, to Pearl Jam flannel. and flannel. My and, hair's getting uh, longer. I, you're, I know it is. I like it. Yeah. Um, so anyway, all right, all this said, we're done. We love you. We bless you. Until next time, brothers and sisters, bye. Thanks for listening to Vox, the Mike Erie podcast. Be sure to like Mike on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash official Mike Erie. Follow Mike on Twitter and Periscope at Mike Erie for live interaction and ongoing Q&A. Don't forget to visit subversivekingdom.com for further engagement and information about Mike.